You're listening to the lucky 13th episode of Season 4 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about songs written about women. Mostly it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting, close connection, particularly if their emotional and social development were messed around with by strict isolationist rules and shame-based upbringing in their formative years. It is also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating around a song from my album, Spurned, which is an old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to it like one watches a video of a car accident, over and over again, in slow motion. Episode 13, Had to Be This Way. Staring down the barrel of middle age from close range, well, from age 30 anyway, my relationship with yet another brethren girl died on the vine as soon as I traveled to her town and met her parents and friends, and we really decided to try it, only to have her tell me, it's like we met up, but God didn't show up. It's like we tried, and God let us down. It felt like that to me, too. We both really tried. And I imagined running everything past God, all the way to this trembling, careful point, agreeing to sit down, the three of us, and discuss it one last time before really proceeding, only to have him push his chair back and walk out of the room with that explanation. Maybe he was just done with all of us brethren and formerly brethren folks breeding anymore at all with each other. I could definitely see that. No means no. But if all of the men in history gave up pursuing women... The first time they said no, expressed boredom or disinterest, or said they didn't really see it working or having a future, the human race would have gone extinct millennia ago. I'd again agreed to be just friends like I tended to do with each one, hoping to keep her in my life and have her one day see it differently from that, but eventually I got a phone call telling me she was engaged to someone with no particular religious beliefs or interest, someone who not only had no troubling views or relationship or history with the brethren, but someone who'd never met someone brethren before. Someone, though she'd gotten engaged to him, she hadn't told about me. She wanted to keep me around, to talk to you on the phone, to run things by and work things out with. I was a very important part of her life, she said, and she wanted to continue as before, just like when we'd hoped for a romance. Because we'd formed a very deep personal bond and leaned on each other a lot. But I was besotted still, so I told her... It hurt too much to talk to her regularly. Because it did. It was deeply confusing to me, in fact. And we've never communicated in any way since. She didn't try to talk me out of my side of it. Unsurprising, as I always knew her to be a deeply principled person who thought of others first, to a fault. It didn't escape me either that her friends and parents were instrumental, as kept happening if I tried to deal with Christian girls, in doing whatever it took to make her doubt a relationship with me could ever work. She couldn't even stay in the same room with us as her parents tried to correct my theology and my views on what had and had not gone on regarding me and my family and brethren circles. Brethren people all really seemed to need my Christian life to not have happened. And when I deal with them, that's one of the things that keeps happening. They keep trying to get me to admit that what happened didn't happen. Christians are quite apt to try to ship people and equally apt to try to warn people not to consider other folks as worthy of dating, to ship them off, I guess. I asked Michael Vetter about this. When you started your relationship with your to-be wife, was there pushback from the Brethren community to her that she shouldn't have been pursuing a relationship with someone like you? 
Yes, yes, there were there were um, uh, husbands of cousins that took her aside and put their arm around her and said said uh, you know I've really got to warn you about this family you want to stay mm -hmm. far away from them. Or, uh, there were friends that um, just cut off relationships completely with her. There was one that that uh, you know advised her strongly against the moral moral and doctrinal evil that I was associated with. Um, and why didn't she listen? She just, she knew better? Yeah. And also, one of the things I say in, in this season of my podcast is, sometimes it backfires when they say that person's kind of dangerous and sketchy. Some women are precisely looking for that. Yes. Your wife was definitely looking for random. Motorcycle driving guy who was drinking a beer while he was riding. She was looking for spontaneous she's looking for anything to give her freedom and break her out of the tedium i think yeah and she was looking for the the like you said the always wanting to take the thing a little higher the to, yeah the, the ride in the spaceship starship sorry it's a starship yeah the stars not just the space space is boring stars are cool right but yeah that that was something that was was said this idea that relationships are supposed to allow you to grow in the direction you're growing in that when you're with somebody they're supposed to help you become more what you are and so i think that in the case of the song i wrote it's a complete red flag or a deal breaker i would say when it's obvious that the other person's motive is to try to make you be less what you're becoming yeah yeah i would agree with that and i think that's generally been a problem with me is they don't want me to be what I am. I don't think I've ever dated someone who wanted to be more of what I am. <laughs> I grew up with this. Christians ruling me not Christian enough or not Christian correctly, so worthy only of going away and dying alone. Being in disfavor with the meeting meant that whether or not they intended to, a lot of women just couldn't pursue a relationship with me because they couldn't see their way through to going against their whole birth culture's negative review of me. I think that's very true. Did you think that at the time, or is that just in retrospect? I did think that at the time, but there were those, um, there were girls that were on the fringe um, mm -hmm. at the time, too, that there were possibilities. Yeah. But I mean, it started with um, the one case um, at your place. Like there was a girl we started writing, and your whole family advised against her dating me and she listened to you guys and that's that's like a mini version of the same thing that women sometimes do succumb to bad reviews from the community yeah yeah it is and i think with my own family it's like we were making a a, a break from the meeting in our thoughts um and you know like separating uh, mark was kind of the the architect of the thing and he it was the pope we, we separated it into this other group and then started doing all of the same yeah. things and thinking in the same way, you know, and be like, Oh, you know, well, we're, we should be in charge of telling who can be, have what relationship and who can't and having opinions on, on that from an outside standpoint, which now I've realized, you know, like that's, that is really kind of evil. And it's weird when you talk to Christians like Harold, um, Harold firmly believes that the role of a church with elders and everything is to get people on a path where they're pursuing God and leave them to it. 
So one of the most potent things that he said that, you know, when someone says something a few times in a conversation, you realize like you mean something that I'm going to have to think about because I'm not, it's more than just the words. He would say, well, so-and-so, I don't get what he's doing, but he has his own walk with the Lord. And at first it sounded like a cliche. And then I realized that what it came from was the assumption that everybody gets to have their own walk with the Lord. The assumption that it isn't his business. So that yeah, you, you think, yeah, you, you think so-and-so shouldn't be doing what they're doing. And you assume that, and it doesn't matter that I don't think they should be doing it. So someone said, what do you think? It's like, I don't think he should. But right on the heels of that is, I don't think it at all matters what I think about his life. Yeah, that idea of he has his own walk with the Lord attitude was very far and few between in the mm-hmm. circles. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not trying to judge, but I'm just, I'm piecing together experiences that I had. And so one of the very familiar experiences was the thing where that's the girls looking at you, you're looking at the girl, there seems to be some chemistry, that's just the physical chemistry, right? And especially in a, an environment where there's not going to be a lot of physicality at the start, there's, there's those sparks are, are happening. And you're kind of hanging around, you're talking to each other, and there's a lot of smiling and that kind of thing, and you go away, and you're kind of thinking about them. And then all of a sudden, some conversations happened. And suddenly, they don't want to talk to you. And you didn't do that. And you blame yourself. But when you really look at it, you didn't really do it someone else did it yeah that for me is a very familiar experience as i i went through the years with you that that experience happened so much that you came to expect it yeah i'm obviously i'm not there when i'm not there so when you say things like people in your family you'll say well she always forgets that she likes you it's hard to understand what that means (laughs) i was pretty sick of christians at this point That shows up in the lyrics, just a bit. And my ability to feel like I was trying to live a life that was pleasing to and working closely with God took a major final hit at this point. I got to say, you're looking older. I am older. Well, all the time you spend trying to get back what's been took from you, more is going out the door. After a while, you just have to try to get a tourniquet on it. I feel overmatched. I always figured when I got older, God would sort of come into my life somehow. And he didn't. And I don't blame him. Surprising him, I'd have the same opinion of me that he does. And I felt like I was almost owed an apology from him of some kind, having done everything I did in good faith, as it were, and apparently all for nothing and without any way of having known any better. So I envisioned God giving me a very parental apology of the kind that says he's sorry things turned out this way for me and spoiled my day and or life, but that there was no use blaming any of it on him, that he lets people choose to do what they do and that this was what they chose to do with me, and that was that. That, as Bill once said, Christians do whatever they want to do, and then say God told them to do it. And often, we don't treat each other with anything like the love that is meant to be our key identifier as Christians. So I imagine God telling me that this was just how it had to be. I wasn't cool about it at all. Oh, I tried to be, but no, just like I tried to go along with just friends— and possibly being some kind of emotional side guy, some backup husband. But after a while, it all just hurt too much. 
Susan Isaacs, in her book Angry Conversations with God, relates how it felt to be approaching middle age, unmarried and childless, having been largely overlooked by movies and television apart from tiny character bits on things like Seinfeld and My Name is Earl, and having been dumped by the man she saw as the love of her life, her last shot at marriage and kids. It it had been a terrible uh, 12 months of my life. Um, my father passed away. My mother had a stroke. I was living in New York and um, my entire acting career, which had been very promising, just tanked. And this is just at the same time that my four best friends, uh, their careers took off. And one of my best friends was cast in a hit television show that was created by my high school boyfriend. So I was like, okay, great, awesome. And then I had moved back to LA to help take care of my mother. And those same four friends all got married that within a period of like four months of each other. Um, Just as the guy I had been dating for three years, we broke up over the phone. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to uh, New York in July to attend the wedding circus. And uh, a churchy friend called me when I landed and I remember praying, um, uh, Lord, you know, show me what you have for me today, because I don't, I, I, you know, I really, I need something. And I went into town, we met for, and got salads. We went into Central Park and sat on this grassy knoll. And just when I started to feel like, okay, maybe things are going to get better. My boyfriend of three years walked past with his new girlfriend and stopped in front of her pretzel cart and started making out with her. In this Central was Park. like in Central Park, in, in a city that I currently wasn't living in anymore, in a city of 12 million people and like how many square miles. He didn't see me, but I saw him. And I like, what are the chances? So when you talk about, um, you know, what in the world is God doing? And my churchy friend said, well, praise God, he's showing you that Jack moved on. You you know, really insensitive thing to say. I mean, I say many years later, I realized it's exactly what God was doing. I was like, see this guy? Mm -hmm. He has to jump into the next thing. You know, he's not worth your time. But uh, it was a very ill-timed thing to say. So I, I went through that, like, what are the chances? that this friend of mine in New York in my sketch comedy group would get cast in a show created by my high school boyfriend and that my career would tank as all theirs took off, that my personal life would just fall apart right when theirs took off. I really felt like there was a target on my back Mm -hmm. and that God had singled me out just to like destroy me. Um, And I, 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 that began an unraveling of, you know, I've been a Christian all my life and I felt God's presence and I felt like there was a purpose. There were far too many things that could not go down to coincidence that felt like God, I had a target on my back and that God just must hate me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet he was cruel. And that also began a complete unraveling of my entire faith and how I looked at the world. Cause I thought, Either God is not around and this is all random or he is around. He's being really, really cruel to me. And I, what have I based my whole life on? And I had like a real spiritual breakdown. Um, And I, that's when I went, I went to see a Christian counselor and 
we quickly identified that my image of God, um, how I saw him in my head was really twisted, was very, very twisted. And that comes from a lot of things. It just comes from, um, you know, bad theology, you know, dysfunctional family stuff, our own expectations or whatever. But the thing that I've learned a lot since then, um, if you've ever read Richard Rohr, Father Richard Rohr wrote a really good book called Falling Upward. And he basically tells us what Joseph Campbell talked about in The Hero with a Thousand Faces, that the hero's journey is the journey of everyone has a vision for their life. And, and we all basically have to go on this journey where all of our crap gets burned off of us. And that you must hit a place in your life of failing. Um, you cannot orchestrate your own enlightenment. But you all you have to ultimately get to the place of necessary suffering and failure um, in order to get to the deeper journey. That is the story of life. I mean, I teach screenwriting, so I teach them this classic structure mm -hmm. and why there's a mathematic, there's something organic in how humans learn and why we've been telling this story forever and ever. And I certainly went through one at that time, and I didn't think I would make my way out of it. I've gone through other ones since then. So it's constantly, um, Henry Nouwen talked about the downward way, the way of the cross, the way of spiritual enlightenment is unfortunately through suffering. And I will say this, I think that there's people I've met who have never had to suffer, who maybe they were born into wealthy families and money was thrown at problems so they never had to deal with those stuff. And those people are not, um, people you want to be around. No. Now, not all songs I write about a thing end up in podcast episodes, believe it or not. Some just don't make the cut, not for the full treatment anyway. I have often had to write several songs before I ended up saying what I wanted to say, how I wanted to say it, and finally close the lid on this or that basket of spitting snakes. So there are fragments and failures of songs on scraps of paper and generally strewed about my hard drives. I tend to get words in my head, kind of concentrated ways to sum things up succinctly, and sometimes tunes come right along with them, but often not. I think a lot of people are the other way, with melodies coming to them that they need to slot words into later if they want songs. Michael Vetter, quite a bit like Tom Bombadil, minus the fractured trochaic tetrameter, strides around the woods on a mountaintop in Tennessee, singing to himself like Davy Crockett. And he most likely won't come up with any words for any of it. With me, some songs have a vocal hook, but then the rest of the song never quite happens in terms of more words, more ideas, or more tune. 
Writing a good song when you're psychologically under duress is a tricky balancing act. So this abandoned song here was written during a period of complete disgust with myself. And although it starts out fairly promisingly, after about two lines, it collapses into uninspired, unpoetic, inarticulate shit. Maybe I rock so many times I just can't get right. Maybe I will be forever walking out late at night. Maybe I've been sure shit about so many things that turned out in the end to be just shit and harmful shit at that. And other songs don't really add up to enough. So this one, written before the engagement announcement, was about abandoning the idea that I could help this girl with her inner darkness and confusion, knowing that all of her emotional stuff was her own problem to deal with. I sent it to her. Unfortunately, it was just more posturing, trying, Christian style, to sing an attitude I only wished I was deep and mature and spiritual enough to genuinely possess. The only mature, honest thing about it was a recognition that whenever a woman comes to me, confused and deeply unhappy, I always want to fix that to make it all better. And in most ways, you can't. At best, you can be comforting while they work it out, or more often, while they try to flee and deny dealing with it entirely, which approach I am annoyingly unsupportive of. Most women I have tried to help out quite rightly moved on to guys who are able and willing to leave them to their misery rather than trying to sort it out with them. Accept them as miserable people they can live with in married misery to perpetuity, and if these men aren't content with that, to leave them for a different guy who will accept their unexamined misery as beautiful. I express in this lyric a regretful fondness and the end of the dream of the relationship, and a slightly passive-aggressive reference to a field that is only a field of wheat because this one was another one who, like so many women were at the time, was on a gluten-free diet. Remember mothers avoiding getting their homeschooled kids vaccinated and raising them to fear even catching a whiff of fresh-baked bread or melting cheese? Remember the primitive attempts at gluten-free beer, styrofoam cheeses, and any number of imitation baked goods that tasted vaguely of Play-Doh? I don't think the song here is memorable enough to warrant a complete redo and being featured in a whole episode of its own. But hearing it now, inappropriately jubilant, it got stuck in my head again, the helpless regret in the words mismatched with the celebratory triumph in the melody, and the whole thing being kind of a lie. Wishing someone well, going on with their life without me in it, except of course as a confidant, priest confessor, therapist, and non-gay, gay best friend pretending to be cool with it and so happy for her, waiting for those needy phone calls in the night, living for them, in fact. And they did come, of course, like the rain. So I guess I'll just remix my old material and play some of it here to give you a taste of it. I wish I could fix you Say the magic phrase Open the doors and the bluebirds would fly out singing Across the world People would shout With every single church bell Out there ringing But I can't And I don't know how to feel 
except regret that I am not beyond these limitations that I feel as you turn and face your darkness but it's yours and it only can be yours I wish I could praise you and make you feel proud Make you stand up straight And hold your head up high Instead you're prone to lie in bed Maxed out by the day That you've agreed to fill Till you're supine But I can't And I don't know how to feel Except regret that I am not beyond the limitations that I feel as you turn and face your darkness but it's yours and it only can be yours I wish that I could come along and help you to escape to run away in a field of wheat together Wind blowing through our hair Taking our fears from us Each torn away Like boats bereft of tether But I can't And I don't know how to feel Except regret that I am not beyond These limitations that I feel As you turn and face the darkness But it's yours And always will be yours But it's yours And always will be yours When I wrote it, I thought I'd gotten perspective and given up finally on this one relationship ever happening. But of course, it's never that simple with feelings. So shortly after, when yet another soul-sharing woman I was in love with announced her engagement to a different guy, it wasn't supposed to hurt. But it did. A lot. Returning home one cold winter night about six months after that had happened, in fact, I realized while walking up the stairs that it felt like I'd been walking around with a frosty sword stuck through my chest since the previous summer, not feeling much of anything, and that I'd only just then caught a sense of how wounded I was by all of it. I'd just gone into work each day, tried not to be grouchy with teenagers, their parents, and my colleagues, and said I was fine, all with that sword jutting out of my chest. This was written years before I went into the city and took lessons to learn how to properly stick a sword in other people's chests and faces. I have a song about kind of reaching out to God and saying, what the hell? Like, what's with all this? And it, I associate it with the the clay saying to the potter, why hast thou made me thus? Basically saying, why am I like this? And not feeling you get a good answer. Have you ever had moments like that in your life where you kind of approach God with a bit of a demanding to know why you're not different from how you are? Or is that very me again? You're filled with delight always at how you have been made? Or do you sometimes... That's have... more you. Yeah. You're pretty happy how you've been made? I, I kind of get lost in... I get lost in myself. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I don't... Yeah, no, I've... I've rarely been in that position where I'm, I'm trying to think if I ever have been in the position where I got 
angry with God for what's going on or or have you ever got angry with God for anything I don't think so but wow probably Susan Isaacs interviewed for this season of the podcast wrote a book called angry conversations with God that's only about being angry with God yeah I I probably have been and I just haven't admitted it Don Miller described in one of his books going out and having a, a conversation with God where for the first time he admitted to God that he was angry about his lot in life and God's potential role in it. And he said in Don Miller fashion, I may or may not have hurled a pine cone at God as I told him this. <laughs> I think it's it's healthy. Yeah. But also, like you said, it is like the the potter say, Why have you made me like this? You know, well, you you're like it. Like that's what you're like. Be it. Because I sometimes have felt like if God makes us, which I think he might, he makes us to benefit him and maybe the people around us. So when you're talking about me and how I think, I'm making a bit of a case that despite people finding me uncomfortable, that I'm actually useful. So when you were saying that how uncomfortable it is to have me probing or asking questions or drawing connections, and a lot of it for me is at a gap in my basement that was letting in snakes that were chasing mice that were all getting into my basement. And that's kind of how I view people's lives and relationships. That sometimes there's just a freaking gap and everything is getting in. And, you know, a little squirt with some expanding foam would take care of that problem. So I'm sometimes probing and saying like, you, you'd like to tell me about the bad thing that happened. You want, you want me to give up two hours of my day to listen to you tell me about the bad thing that happened. And I, and I feel horrible that the bad things happened, especially that it's happened yet again. And I know that my role as a man is I'm supposed to throw my hands up and say, I have no idea why this random thing has happened 25 times to you. And let's just sit in the misery and I will try to be as miserable as you. That's my job. And annoyingly, I don't usually do that job. I do that job a little bit. And I do the stereotypically guy annoying thing where I say, why do you think that's happened 27 times? Like, oh, I'm sure it hasn't happened 27 times. It's like, yeah, 27 times, this one, this is the 27th time. And they'll be like, oh, and, and then they want to make a fight or whatever. And you're like, no, no, like, why do you think it's happening? Like, I suppose you're going to blame me. It's like, well, it doesn't matter. It's not about fault. It's about cause. Because do you want this to happen again? It's like, no, if this happens again, it will kill me. It's like, well, why don't we have a look at it not happening again? That's me being annoying, but I actually think that that's valuable. I do too. And I think people keep coming back to get more after they have treated me pretty shabbily in a lot of cases. Yes. Possibly because I was being like that. I think if there's anything I've been made to do, it's to see inconsistencies and vulnerabilities and bad ideas uh, in systems. Someone says, here's a system, here's what it does. And I'm the one that says, okay, but here's the three ways in which that doesn't work sometimes let's make a plan for when it's not going to work and they are deeply offended at me planning for their thing not to work they may be very punitive but when it doesn't work they either really avoid talking to me or demand to talk to me to see what can be done with a lot of annoyance this is a job thing a lot and it's a family thing it's a friend thing and and there's also the thing where they almost want to blame you for causing it. You predicted. Yeah. You, you predicted. It out, it's your fault. Yeah, you, you saw, saw it, it, so you made it happen. You, you made it real. 
You did don't, this. Don't you think a lot of people believe that if you don't think about something, then it can't happen? Yeah, or it just goes away. Yeah, you don't think about it. It just goes away. It's like the negative. Uh, if if you don't like the negative, the unpleasant, just don't think about the unpleasant, then it, it will go away. People yeah, do seem to think like that. Say, you could lie a hundred times, but it still doesn't make it true. Yeah. You know. I also think like the prophet, the role of the prophet isn't prophecy in terms of what's going to happen in the future, no, but like to, to be like this is what you look like. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking to you. Like why? Why are musical artists so big it's because they become prophets in terms of telling us what we look like artists become prophets in terms of stand up holding comics. a mirror up to us yes i can't oh, believe i can't believe that i mean first it was people like john stewart um and then eventually it was all the others including joe rogan it seems like people keep coming to comedians because they want honesty and mm-hmm quite often comedians are allowed to be honest a little bit. Um, It's gotten heavily, it's gotten heavily, heavily politicized now that I am feeling like we're losing that, but I can't believe how many pundits on YouTube are failed comedians. Oh yeah. That's what they want to do. Oh yeah. 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 And I think um, sometimes I'd rather they just stick to comedy, but no, I mean, I like Jon Stewart a lot, but um, I mean, Louis CK before he got canceled, um, I mean, I felt like so much of what he said was just like spot on. Yeah. Because he was honest. He really was honest. Yeah, I really, yeah. lo- I really love Louis C.K.'s stuff, and I, I, guilty pleasure. I mean, I still, I still think he's hilarious. I um, yeah, and and really smart. Yeah. And and really, really, so so much truth in what he says. Stand up is done in front of a live audience, and because we've all been kind of sequestered for the last couple of years, I don't know if it there's been an opportunity. I mean, I love Bo Burnham. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. But, you know, give it a couple of years for things okay. to thaw out. We'll see who shows right. up. Because, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of was thinking that there was no comedy or it wasn't safe to be anything but making fun of right-wingers is the only kind of comedy that was left is mock, mockery. Yeah, and I, it's really tiring. Yeah. It's, a, it's tiring. I think the left is funnier, but I think that they are unself-conscious and and disrespectful of the past and other human beings so i'm i'm uncomfortably in the middle that i don't like a lot of what i see on any side and that makes me feel very homeless i've had people i've had people tell me there's no center like if you're not with us then you're a racist or you're whatever and i don't care it's like if i get criticism from both sides and maybe i am in the middle this song isn't so much me claiming god told me something it was me imagining what a god i believe to be at all sympathetic might potentially have to say to someone like me in anything like my position vis-a-vis him. I mean, we're talking about the guy who'd create the pig, all right? But then to kind of make up for that, forbid his chosen people eating any bits of them at all and give them, science tells us, orgasms that last for as long as 30 minutes. Pigs, I mean, not Jews necessarily, but 30 minutes. And sometime before this song being written, I'd written a less considered but quite sincere song almost attempting to reproach God for having, despite all the promises of my church, including don't Don't watch watch TV TV or go to live entertainment and God will give you a wife one day, day, not followed through. Quoting his own word back at him. I think this little song is interesting as a thing that exists, but I don't know that it goes in with my stuff, so I didn't do a whole episode about it. It was something I felt and feel oddly detached from. It's kind of a manipulative, self-pitying thing, too. Me playing dumb spiritually in song to see how that would go and what it would sound like. 
And I had this idea that I would make it differently from how I usually work, not really like me at all. It's almost like I didn't want to commit myself or my style to it, because ultimately it wasn't an attitude I could respect. So I think I wanted to make it end up sounding like contemporary Christian music radio stuff or something. A performed death of a lot of my connections to the whole simple-minded approach to Christianity I've been raised on. I also thought, once I finished it, that I'd somehow made something that would probably work pretty well as the song to play over the closing credits to some movie or other. Yeah, 
would you say that to me? Is that the kind of being you are? Is this the best you've got for me? Would you say that to me? Or will you do this to me? Or will you do this to me? Or will you do this to me? It was the closing credits on something I knew. Would you say that a lot of things that looked unfair and nonsensical at the time, like 10, 20 years later, they start to make more sense? Yes. And other things are just not fair. Right. Yeah. Some things are just, you know, they suck. And there's, I would definitely say, you know, I think God plays the long game. It's like, you've got to play the long game Mm -hmm. in your life, whether it's relationships or career or aspirations or whatever it's like you gotta um look for it's so easy to compare but yeah a lot of those things in in, um now that the years have gone past they they make a lot more sense and then other things just still remain sad right you know one, one of my um best friends died suddenly of a brain hemorrhage a year and a half ago um and i know that in light of eternity you know it's going to be a blip and i'll see her again and she'll be like, remember that time that I died and I left you? Like, yeah, like, oh, that totally sucks. But right now, it's just, a, it sucks because I know I'll see her, but there's all these memories this side of heaven that we don't get to make because mm-hmm. she's gone. And, the, the, and what's really sad is that her sister had died of cancer 18 months before she did. And her father died of liver cancer three months before she did. And she was only 48. So her mom lost both of her daughters and her husband within 18 months. And I just, there's no, this just, uh, you know, there is no like things making sense. We were raised with a simple binary understanding of the world. There were children of light. That was us whom God loved and whose lives he would ensure worked out if we obeyed him and lived the lifestyle the brethren, I mean, God expected of us. And there were our opposite numbers, children of wrath. That was everyone else, who, if God didn't outright hate them, certainly harbored boundless wrath towards, hence the name, and whose lives were certainly going to end up in the gutter on the way to eventual eternal torment in a fiery hell. We were special. The world was quite literally going to hell, but not us. Tell about us, George, hey-ho. We'd have our own little farm in heaven one day, and I'd get to tend the gospel tracts. And right now, we had each other, the Bible, and meetings. But not me. Not anymore. I didn't have those people anymore, because they wouldn't have me. And the Bible, looked at now, looks quite a bit different than it used to. And those meetings wouldn't have me either, each week. Nowadays, most people raised like me have managed to find more peace than I have. Mostly they haven't had to change much, because change is hard. Mostly they do and say and think and feel pretty much all the same stuff or some suitable replacement stuff just at a different street address. I listened to a podcast recently by someone who was raised like me, and in his voice I heard that hushed, quiet reverence for his own group's worldview and outlook. I heard the jargon, 
spoken without irony, and I remembered and felt keenly how much I don't feel that anymore. When he thinks of his walk with the Lord and his walk of faith or his Christian life or whatever, it seems to him like something lofty and deep and high and holy, something he fails to live up to, something he occasionally lets down. For me, my whole outlook on God and my view of and approach to him let me down, where his relationship with God seems to be a rooting, grounding, calming thing that sparks gratitude and reverence. For me, it's a perennial question mark. Mine's more like all those psalms in the Bible. For him, God is always there and never changes. For me, God is always not what you think at all. A perennial question mark, the old answers I was given, no longer match up with. I'm sure if I spoke to the guy with the podcast, he'd tell me that he often thinks and feels more like me than I suspect. And I'd point out to him that that isn't what he chooses to put in his podcasts. With Christians, you're welcome so long as you're happy and you believe. When you doubt or agonize like all those psalms in the Bible, like Jesus in the garden, you're on your own, just like Jesus was. And the more I've felt what Christians have called the negative or dark stuff, the more I've related to the people in the Bible and Jesus in the garden instead of to the people in the churches. I know this doesn't just happen to me or even a minority of Christians. God isn't turning out to be at all how you were told he was. It kind of feels like you were lied to, maybe by him, if you think he even exists anymore. Don Miller said it's like you saw the slap chop or the sham wow in an infomercial, and now that you've got it and tried to use it, it doesn't seem to be as advertised. What kind of person does that leave you to be? There is more than one option there. Two obvious ones can be predicted. If your church raised you to expect a relationship with church and God and Christians and the world itself that was about to get better and better and better because God, the kingdom, and so on, and love, 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 after a few decades of it clearly not getting better and better and better at all and not everything being about love, 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 and being faced with really hard stuff like the death of one's child or spouse or the dreams of ever having either of those, what you're feeling doesn't match how you expected to be feeling, all thinking, doctrine, beliefs, and theological and political stances aside. It just doesn't. And you know that maybe it never will. So what now? Some people in that position do the obvious thing, sour on the whole Christian thing, and sneer in a cynical way, hoping to be too wise now to fall for such things, and finding new doctrines, beliefs, and political stances on the internet to sit under the sound of each week. Others kind of keep on keeping on, living their life with a bit of an empty look in their eyes, saying they don't really get why things are turning out the way they are, but carefully drawing no real conclusions about any of it. And of course, some of us were raised in the other kind of church. We were brought up to expect a relationship with church and God and Christians and the world itself to inevitably fall down dramatically, collapsing in flames due to man's error, to be brought to an abrupt end by the rapture, the great tribulation, and so on, likely this year. The world was going to burn from the melting polar ice caps on down. Truly, end times. These really were the last days. Climate change and ships of shittim in the Gulf. So we developed into teens and adults with that expectation, a world that was about to burn. And after a few decades of things remaining relatively unchanged in the world and the lives of everyone around us, we were faced with the reality that what we were living and feeling certainly lasted longer and wasn't what we expected to be dealing with. 
This wasn't the deal. 2023? What was going on with that? We weren't supposed to ever need to worry about living to remember to write that date on anything. When was the judgment of the wrongness going to really hit the world? When would everything and everyone finally get straightened out and the world made sense of? Some people in that position do the obvious thing, sour on the whole Bible thing and sneer in a cynical way, hoping to be too wise now to fall for such things and finding new doctrines, beliefs, and political stances on the internet to sit under the sound of each week. And others keep on keeping on, living their life with a bit of an empty look in their eyes, saying they don't really get why things are turning out the way they are, but carefully drawing no real conclusions about it. That last one is the most like me, I guess. Let's look in the Wicked Mailbag. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Walking to the Wicked Mailbag opening. The Wicked Mailbag, what's in the mailbag today? Let's look in the Wicked Mailbag. I invited people in Facebook groups to tell me what life events shook their belief in God as being a good person for me to read out loud here. Some of them used emojis for me to apparently read, so I'll have to use sound effects to represent those. Carrie Jo writes, Suffered a pinched nerve and the extreme pain associated with such injuries. Prayed and prayed for God to remove the pain, but he didn't. I could not reconcile a good father with such inaction on my behalf. I would do anything to remove my child's pain or discomfort, so why wouldn't God do that for me? Still baffles me. This is quite timely, considering Megan messaged me today that she is starting to believe in a personal relationship with God more because after people at her new church prayed about her hurt shoulder that she got from working out too much, it felt better. Dave writes, The people running the show put a big dent in your faith, although I'm aware it's the people running the show doing that and not God. I think that's a good thing to remember. Paul writes, Ignoring all the pleas to heal my four-year-old niece from cancer. That's a really tough one. Richard writes, Not making me straight. Maybe God meant to make Richard gay? It doesn't seem to be an accident on God's part or a choice on Richard's. Deanne writes, I never felt God was presented as a good, caring entity. The very idea of requiring your son to be sacrificed seemed appalling to me more like evil, demanding, and uncaring. The general bloodiness and death focus of much of the Bible and our hymns does bother many people. I know our crew didn't understand why people with no experience of church might have had an odd response to coming out and hearing us singing beautiful, soothing old hymns like, There is a fountain full of blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, or... Precious, precious blood of Jesus shed on Calvary, shed for rebels, shed for sinners, shed for me. Julie writes, as a woman in an abusive marriage, I look for help from the church. They told me I had to suffer for Christ because as a woman, I was cursed. Eve did wrong. So I had to stand under my husband's leadership, however that looked. Decades, I felt trapped by the rules and regulations of a cruel and uncaring God. I was being punished for my sins, like God was waiting for me to screw up and hit me again. That's how I was taught to parent, too, using shame and guilt. 
Fast forward to the present, I have been trying to divorce this abusive man for two years now. Church comforts my abuser and has sent me packing. Best damn thing that ever happened to me. I apologized to my kids for everything I did wrong. They said I was an amazing mom and I did a great job even in the toxic environment. I saw for the first time that it wasn't God but the assholes speaking on his behalf. I am very angry at the church for using God, whoever he is, to destroy me as a person. They taught me about an evil but loving God? The scars I carry are so very deep. I was robbed of decades of my life praying for a miracle or for death. Such a waste. Weird thing is, I never hated God through it all. I was accepting that a being who created a universe as big as this one could do whatever the hell he wanted. Now I see it so much differently. To hell with the harmful church. I wish I could warn other women how harmful this church is. They are pretty much created to be mindless sex slaves that cook, clean, and take care of the family without question, or they get labeled fast. I was always a troublemaker, and the church leaders felt sorry for my abusive husband. Women were subhumans in the church, and that is harmful and evil. Rant over. Now there is a sharing of pain and conflict and human suffering over decades that the emojis used cannot really convey. Often words can't tell the story, but words are all we have. For the song this episode is about, as to the guitar, I knew of drop D tuning as a thing to do to allow you to play thrash metal. I will repeat here how I came to use it for acoustic guitar, as I've related before. I've always loved the movie, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and its hit single, Man of Constant Sorrow, which I could never quite figure out how to play. Well, I went to an open stage in the town where I then lived, and in came a guy in a racing wheelchair. It had no armrests, and it turned out that this was not only to free his arms up for sports, but also for playing guitar. So he borrowed a guitar, dropped the E string down to D, and rather than playing some acoustic take on Rage Against the Machine or something, whipped out Man of Constant Sorrow, and it really sounded right. I'd been playing it regular tuning, and something besides two redneck singing harmony with me was missing. The drop D tuning let the fancy little riffs flow off his fingers. Well, I went home, and when I'd re-recorded Turning Black, this time instead of an electric Pink Floyd-sounding thing, I did it in acoustic guitar tuned to drop D, and every now and then I've done it again, with this song, for example. I like this song, because it's me trying to milk all the feeling I can out of three chords— played over and over again in exactly the same order, just like the Who's chorus on Baba O'Reilly, sometimes called Teenage Wasteland. For the bridge, I took one of those three chords and played it some more, adding a second new chord not yet used in the song, playing those two chords over and over again and trying to put a bunch of feeling into it. I guess the song has kind of a rudimentary guitar riff too, though I don't usually do that. Stolen from the kinds of things I was doing on Man of Constant Sorrow from the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack.
I sent the guide track off to Evan so he could email me drums. They came back, quickly enough, with ideas in them that I hadn't heard in the song, which then inspired me in what I was doing next. First, I Led Zeppelined up Evan's drums a bit with effects and added in some shakers that I played. didn't put in any hand claps because I didn't want to make it quite that happy. Now, when it came to the bass guitar, if I left it in standard tuning with the acoustic guitars in drop D, the first note played on the bass would be the higher D on the third string or the second string, depending which way you're looking at it. And it would sound like this. But if I also tuned the lowest string on the bass down to drop D, Instead of hitting a low E, it would reach down to a lower D than the other one. So rather than just... I could play that, or I could also reach... Rather than... Every time, I could also vary it and play... And when it comes to me and music, I have this the deeper the better thing. I like deep, ominous notes, and so I usually go in that direction. The other thing is, I could even in places double the guitar riff on the electric bass because it was tuned the same. The bass went well enough with the drums, too. For some reason, the middle of the song was sounding a bit thin, so I put in some piano, which I intended to play extremely simply, with no piano fills of any kind, and just kind of hide it in there with the guitar to fatten them up. As it turned out, though I played no fills, the piano sounded good turned up a little bit higher than I had planned. Of course, I did all manner of things with layered voices and whispered voices and shouted voices and snarled voices, as I like doing that kind of stuff. Do expect the critics! The warnings, curses, blame, concerns, complaints, and quibbles, invitations to share shame. And what you miss and who you don't, but it really kind of had to be this way. Kind of had to be this way. Kind of had to be this way. 
and I ended up with a song that wasn't really trying to sound much like anyone else in particular, so likely sounds the most like me. to be 